Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll be talking, well, we'll be talking one crazy week on and off the field. Uh, we'll be talking about the Messi saga, the boycotts, the Salt Lake drama, Weston McKenney, Boys State, Ted Lasso, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, August 31st of the year 2020? I am doing well after another busy weekend of covering Major League Soccer. Uh, Yes, I mean, knock on wood and thank uh, whatever uh, gods you want out there, including the soccer gods that uh, we continue to be employed and we continue to be working soccer coming fast and furious especially when it comes to major league soccer and uh, we've spent uh, our weekend working on that we will continue to do so throughout this week and uh, through next weekend because there's a lot of games there's a lot of games out there and the european seasons are upon us basically uh, in the next uh, week or two starting up again uh, all over the place so there's gonna be a lot of people uh, kicking the ball how did your week go uh, aside from the uh, the soccer part of it see anything interesting out there I am cranking away on Deadwood, uh, middle of season three, just a few episodes left. And then the movie, uh, I should be done by the end of this week. And then I will uh, uh, offer a review on next week's pod. I don't want to say anything about it until I'm completely done. Uh, the other thing is I checked this morning and the first three episodes of the Tottenham All or Nothing documentary have dropped on Amazon Prime. I haven't watched any of it yet, but I will. And already reading some articles about it, it seems like Jose Mourinho is in rare form and he will be the star of this documentary. So I would expect nothing less from him. I mean, if you're going to have it with Jose Mourinho, he, he better be the star. He better be bringing it in that uh, in, in that sense. As, as those that have uh, listened and watched over the last couple well, weeks, but also since the start of this podcast, you know my hard and fast rule about not starting something unless I can binge it from start to finish. I broke that rule with Ted Lasso, unknowingly uh, thinking that the, the, the that all the episodes were out there. They aren't, which now I'm hooked. Now they got me. And now every single Friday, which is when the episodes come out, I am there with you know saliva dripping down the side of my face, waiting for it uh, to be uh, to come online. And, and rightfully so, because it... it it is, it is really, really good. I got my family into it now, risque type of uh, moments. But for the most part, it is family friendly. It's so well done uh, and interesting. And so, I guess, different than what I ever thought it was going to be. So, uh, And they just got it picked up for another season, evidently, uh, which means I will continue to be a slave to the Ted Lasso which you know, ultimately is the, the Apple TV gods uh, out there uh, and machine that is out there. The other thing I did uh, see, though, I wanted to mention, speaking of Apple TV, and this is, look, they don't pay me and we don't get anything from it, but, uh, and I got it for free for uh, an iPhone that I got. And um, there's not a lot of content out there. Much of it is just pay for uh, content on that. But there, are, there is some uh, original content uh, and there is some that is uh, specific to Apple TV, including the, uh, the documentary Boys State. Have you seen this, Mossy? No. Okay, it's really, really good. I highly recommend it. It, it won a bunch of awards. I had never even heard of it uh, until uh, I saw an article and then saw that it was Apple TV. And it's basically like this documentary that documents this uh, this event that happens uh, with the American Legion down in Texas, where they bring together some of the brightest and finest uh, young men, 17, uh, 16, 17, 18-year-olds um, in high school, 
for uh, an opportunity to learn in practice how government works and how the state government of Texas works. And so they split into parties, they, uh, they have elections, they have you know, mandates and platforms that they, and all different uh, roles within the government and they mirror what's happening in Texas. And so they documented this and what ended up happening was this kind of <laughs> Lord of the Flies type of situation that mirrors incredibly where our real politics are and where our real life is. And it's just fascinating to see these kids go through this, uh, this process and the awakening and the realization and sometimes the sober realization of what politics is and what it isn't and how ugly it can be, but also how rewarding it can be. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. And there's a, probably a reason why it won a bunch of awards. But I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I went into it not knowing a whole lot about it. And I came out of it where it's a, I guess it's a, a wonderful, uh, but also, like I said, sobering type of statement about where our politics are and have been, because a lot of it is, is just historic. And that's kind of what politics are. But uh, that, was, uh, that was fun to watch. Um, I know uh, that we had gotten some questions um, this week on Twitter about our podcast habits and what we what we listen to out there. We will in the future, uh, in the near future here, have have a segment because I know people are interested in that. I know we, uh, we talk a lot about what we watch and, and from a television perspective, but this is a podcast. And I know you and I are huge devourers of podcasts out there and a number of different genres and some of them we share some of them we don't so we're going to put together a little segment a short segment in the in the coming episodes that really kind of give you what we listen to out there not just the soccer podcast obviously we listen to soccer podcasts but a whole lot of other stuff out there and there's so much good stuff out there there's there's a lot of bad stuff out there too but there's a lot of good stuff uh, out there does that sound does that, does that sound good mossy uh, if i task i task you with that absolutely no i'd love that all right, cool. Um, all right, well, that's enough about our uh, viewing and listening habits uh, over the last week. We got plenty of soccer, as we said, in the open to uh, get to. All right, Mossy, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, we're going to jump right in on... <laughs> so, inevitably, you know, like I said, we were recording this on a Monday. We normally do record it on a Monday. It comes out on a Tuesday. And inevitably, things are not in the pod because they happened after we got done <laughs> recording. Uh, the messy saga continues to drop and change. We've had uh, it's so many twists and turns in it. We're going to start off with the messy uh, saga. And it is a saga right now. You're dealing with arguably the greatest player ever to play the game. A player that was, you know, let's be honest, birthed and incubated and fostered and matriculated out of the cocoon that is Barcelona. If any player has ever said Barcelona, it is Leo Messi. Uh, and now we come to find out that he potentially wants to go someplace else. And this is seismic in terms of a move, not just for what it would mean to whatever team he were to go to, but I think, you know, for, for soccer in general and for La Liga and obviously for Barcelona. So there's so many different layers, so many things to talk about. Let's, let's first preface this with what we, what we do know. And there's a lot that we don't know, but let's just start with what we do know. Contractually, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, Mossy, and I know that you will. I just want to get, make sure that everybody understands. Contractually, Messi was signed to the end of this past season, and then he had an option for the next season. But within that contract, it said that if he opted out for that final year, which would be the year of 2020 to 2021, then he was able to go 
uh, and he would be able to go wherever he wanted in the world on a free. The conflict right now, uh, because it's 2020 and nothing is simple in 2020, is that the season went beyond. And so the, the big argument right now in terms of whether he can go or not, or whether he can go and there is a transfer fee required, is if the contract was to a date or if the contract was to the end of the 2019-20 season. That's where I think the courts are going to have to decide. And I don't know because I don't have the contract in front of me and, I, and nobody really knows exactly what it stipulates in there. So there's a, a couple of different questions. One, does he want to go? Two, if he goes, is there a transfer fee attached or not? Obviously, Barcelona is looking at if he wants to go, fine, we're, that, that's, we're not happy about it, but we're going to get paid. And Messi, if he wants to go, and his team are saying, no, uh, we opted out of the final year and he should be able to go free. Have I framed that correctly, Masi? Yeah, more or less. I mean, my understanding is the last contract he signed with Barcelona in 2017 included a buyout figure of 700 million euros, but also this clause that enables him to terminate the contract and leave for free each summer so long as he activates the clause very early in the summer, just a few days after the end of the season. Um, and so the deadline this year was in early June, which would have been the end of the season normally. Ugh, normally. Yep. Uh, the messy camp feels like the pandemic rendered that deadline irrelevant. The spirit of the agreement was that he could exercise this clause at the end of each season, which is now. And Barcelona, as you mentioned, uh, are saying no. So essentially, uh, Messi sent a bureau fax, whatever the heck that is, to Barcelona <laughs> telling them, uh, I'm exercising the clause. And as far as I'm concerned, I am no longer a Barcelona player. So see you later. And Barcelona quickly responded with a bureau fax of their own saying, no, the deadline was such and such date. You missed it. So as far as we're concerned, you're still a Barcelona player. Preseason training starts in a few days. We'll see you there. And Messi, of course, didn't show up for the first day of preseason because that would undermine his claim that he is no longer a Barcelona player. Um, and what I found interesting about this whole thing, and maybe we can start there, is um, there is this sentiment out there that Messi has done so much for Barcelona that the classy move here would be for the club to facilitate his departure. Uh, and Barcelona have very quickly dispelled any notions of that and, and made it clear, no, no player is bigger than the club. And we have to look out for the better interests of the club. And so they've come under some criticism for that. Uh, you tend to take a cold-blooded business-like <laughs> approach to most things. So uh, do you have any sympathy for the uh, point of view that, that Barcelona should be making this easier on Messi? Or no, do you agree that at the end of the day, they have to look out for the best interests of the club? I have no sympathy uh, for anybody out there that seems to think that Barcelona should be making this easier on Messi for what he has given. Messi is going to get plenty of plaudits. Messi is going to get the statue outside the stadium. Messi is going to be uh, just celebrated until the end of time for what he has done. And that will always be associated with what he has done at, Barce uh, at Barcelona. But as you mentioned, Barce Barcelona existed before and will exist as after. And Barcelona is more than Messi, as important as he has, uh, as he has been. And you know, while they like to say they're a uh, Mestun club, they, they are not more than any other club when it comes to the business. 
And there is a business element of this. And not only from a Barcelona standpoint, but also from a La Liga standpoint, okay? Because you're looking at a, at a league that has built itself on two teams, let's be honest, uh, in terms of the worldwide viewership and why people tune into La Liga. Because, and I know there's plenty of people out there that watch for other, uh, other teams, but in general, the world tunes in because of Real Madrid and because of Barcelona. And more importantly, because of the stars that exist on that team. And so now you're looking at a La Liga that is faced with not having Messi, not having Ronaldo, not having Neymar. And, you know, that's, that's a significant concern for the league as a whole. Um, I, I, guess, I guess my question to you, first and foremost, then, uh, is do you think Messi really wants to go? Yes, I do. Um, I think uh, he's grown very frustrated and, and this, is, this is not him posturing to get a better deal or to force the president out, as, I, as I've read in some places. Uh, I think he's gotten to a place mentally that, that he does truly want to try something different in his career. And, but, and, but and just to say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. But if he's frustrated with what, is, what, what exists in Barcelona, if that structure were to change, wouldn't that frustration go away? And by all accounts the type of power that he wields, he could fundamentally change that structure <laughs> with, with, you know, with the touch of a finger and say, I anoint this person, I need this, I need this and this, and he could create that structure. Now, from a Barcelona perspective, as important as he was, and we've said how important he was, maybe they don't want to acknowledge that or give him that moment uh, of power in order to create it. Or maybe, maybe they say, you know what? As great as Messi is, we're actually better off in this situation moving on. Yeah, I mean, just to put a button on my previous point, uh, the, the media reaction has been interesting. I've been reading a lot of articles on uh, the two major newspapers, Sport and El Mundo Deportivo, and then scrolling down to the comments section as well. And it's pretty divided. For every person that plays the Messi has done so much for Barcelona card, you, somebody else will come in and say, well, wait a minute, Barcelona have also done a lot for Messi. They signed him as a scrawny 13-year-old when there was no guarantee he was going to turn into anything. Although, if you see that, those clips of an 8-year-old Messi that popped up on the internet this week, he was as close to a sure thing yeah. as there's ever been. Yeah. But nevertheless, they signed him as a 13-year-old, paid for his uh, medication that helped him grow, brought him to the best academy in the world, La Masia, brought him into the first team. And although it's gone bad lately, for most of his career, they've given him a great platform to succeed, surrounded him with great players, and all the while paid him an exorbitant amount of money. So there are some people that feel like the gratitude goes both ways here. And why are we only looking at this in terms of what Messi has done for Barcelona? And, 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 and we should also look at it the other way, and that this is kind of bad form on Messi's part. The club is in a disarray here in a bit of a crisis. And with everything the club has done for you, now you're going to pick this moment to try to leave this way and exercise a clause and try to get out for free. Do you think there's some criticism Messi's way here that this is sort of bad form the way he's handling it? Um, no, I, I, I don't think that. I mean, I think that's the way it will be framed at times. And I do think that, that there will be those that will go out of the way to paint him as a villain. And, you know... It's hard because Messi has never, never been painted as a villain. As a matter of fact, he has been the, you know, the, the quiet, stoic, shy, reserved type of superstar, the likes of which nowadays we don't see, especially when you juxtapose him with the Zlatans and the uh, Cristianos and, and stuff. And that's, you know, part of it is he doesn't speak. We don't, we don't see him in that type of context. He's not one that, you know, 
beats his chest or, or, or anything like that, which kind of makes him special and, and unique. But it also opens him up to criticism and opens him up to being painted um, by others, like I said, and as a, as a villain in this type of situation. Everybody's going to try to shape the narrative to, to fit what they to fit what they uh, what they want. All right, let's let's push it a little bit forward here. So you think that he legitimately wants to go? Um, I'm still not I'm still not so sure, but let's just let's just say that that is the case. And let's just say that there is a number out there that gets this get this gets this uh, this deal done. Where is that deal? I mean, is Messi can't just go anywhere. I mean, he can go anywhere, but he's not going to go anywhere. So is this just Man City or bust? Well, so we agree on this fundamental point. He's, uh, he's not going to leave for free. Um, it, he floated that out there, hopefully, hoping Barcelona would go along with it, which they didn't. And it seems like the legal argument is in Barcelona's favor here. At the very least, it would be some protracted legal battle that's not in anybody's best interest. Um, at the same time, he has only one year left in his contract. So um, right. Barcelona, they're, they're still clinging to this hope that they can they can – change his mind about this. It's been brought up that in 2016, remember after he missed that penalty against Chile in the centenarial final and quit Argentina, he then walked that back. So there is some precedent, Messi uh, making a big decision like this, but then changing his mind. However, I do think they would have to turn his mind around completely and get him to sign an extension. And there is a two-year extension on the table for him until 2023. But short of that, I, I don't see much purpose in forcing him to play out this last season and then him definitely leaving for free uh, next summer. I, I'm not sure that makes a whole lot of sense. So if they're not able to turn his mind around completely uh, towards signing an extension, really committing his his future to Barcelona again, I, I think where we're headed is what you said. They're going to get him in a room and say, look, you're not going to leave for free, but we're not going to hold you to that 700 million euro buyout clause. There is a transfer fee here that if a club is willing to pay that we'd, we'd be willing to accept. And, and two numbers to keep in mind, uh, 222 million euros is what PSG paid for Neymar. Uh, now that was his buyout clause that they they activated. Uh, I, I've I've seen some talk that if Barcelona are going to sell Messi, they want to make sure it's the biggest transfer in history. So it would have to be a number bigger than that, which seems very unrealistic in this pandemic economy we're in. I think the more realistic number to look at is when Cristiano Ronaldo left Real Madrid at the same age that Messi is now. By the way, 33, uh, Juventus paid a hundred million euros for him. Uh, to, to pry him away from Real Madrid. So I think more realistically, that's what you're looking at uh, for Messi in this sort of economy. And yeah, like you said, Barcelona would be able to talk themselves into if he was only going to stick around for one more year anyway, we take that money, we get his salary off the books and, and we move on now and, and, and for whatever the next phase of this club post Messi is going to be. Uh, but even 100 million euros is, is <laughs> you know, uh, it, it does limit how many clubs could realistically afford him. So um, listen, the two clubs that have been positioning themselves the last few years to really legitimately make a run at Messi are Manchester City and Inter Milan. Um, I said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that I thought he would go to Inter before Manchester City. It sounds like I'm wrong about that. Most of the reporting seems to be that City is his top choice. The two other clubs you've heard mentioned that have at least kicked the tires on it, it sounds like, are PSG and Juventus, which... Uh, both would be sort of mind-blowing from an assemblage of stars standpoint. I mean, him going to play with Neymar and Mbappe at PSG or going to play with Ronaldo and Weston McKinney at Juventus. Um, joking there about the last one. But, Why do you do um, that? Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in the okay. segment. But uh, I, I kind of look at PSG and Juventus as outsiders and all this. 
and 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 frankly, I I thought Inter Milan was a bigger possibility than it sounds like it is. It, it sounds like really the, the the signs are pointing to Manchester City. All right, so let's play it out then. Um, Messi does something that a lot of people never thought would happen, in that, uh, including. I, including I, I thought that you know he was going to be a, a lifer when it came to Barcelona, but let's say that uh, he goes to Man City and he's he's with Pep. What does Man City look like with a Messi? Um, because you know we he's still got to fit into what whatever team he goes to, and I'm trying to think where and how he fits into that. And look, they'll, they'll make it happen, but is it a good fit? Uh, what does he look like individually? Does he change the way that he plays relative to the team or does the team change? Uh, and ultimately, is this successful? And maybe, maybe he would have a different definition of what successful is, but any team that has Messi on it, you know, success is, <laughs> is looked at as winning and winning a lot. And this is a team that is going to win a lot even without Messi, but obviously that, that, that holy grail of, uh, of Champions League uh, looms large. Yeah, I think he's really reinvented himself as more of a playmaker in recent years, and he would look to play that position he's played at Barcelona the last few years of floating uh, in from the right to the middle uh, and having everything sort of run through him. Uh, obviously, that would be bad news for guys like Phil Foden and Bernardo Silva. And I, I also I, I wonder about the dynamic with De Bruyne. Now, on the one hand, it, it is salivating the prospect of having two passers of that quality in the same team, but... De Bruyne is a guy who's accustomed to having everything run through him and his instinct when he gets the ball is to look up and, and, and look to play the pass and, and try to spot Sterling or Jesus or somebody else making a run. And, you know, if you have Messi there and he, he, he wants you to play it short to him, De Bruyne would have to adjust his game a little bit and, and sort of strike that balance of, you know, you don't want him to, you want him to still be assertive and, 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 and aggressive out on the field, but he would have to defer to Messi to some degree. So there is some sort of, adaptation that would have to take place there the other aspect of all this Jonathan Wilson I'll, I'll give him credit uh he he wrote a column about this and, and you know Jonathan Wilson is ultra about tactics and all that he always looks at it from that standpoint and and he said that Messi going to Manchester City wouldn't make them that much better because he'd be adding to what's already a strength they already have this unbelievable attack and score a lot of goals and he doesn't address what their real need is which is in defense and he pointed out that it's it's not as great a fit as people think because uh, Manchester City play a very aggressive pressing style and Messi doesn't press anymore. And, and Jonathan Wilson came armed with all, all sorts of statistics about Messi's recoveries per game have been way down the last few years relative to what they were earlier in his career. And that was even a little bit of a source of friction between him and Pep reportedly towards the end of Pep's time at Barcelona. And, and so, yeah, I mean, they're actually, after that initial sort of thought of like, wow, you, you take that Manchester City team and plop Messi on top of it, they would be unbeatable, they would win everything. Actually, some people have started to take a little bit of a closer look at it, and, and there are some questions starting to emerge. Yeah, look, if you can sign Messi, you sign Messi. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are, how big you are, you, yeah, you'll figure it out. And those, these are, as Tata Martina used to say, these are champagne problems, uh, problems to have. All right, let's finish it up here, though. Uh, because you know now we've seen or, or thought about what a Man City would look like with Messi. You know, and I mentioned earlier that whether they say it out loud or not, there might be those at Barcelona that are looking for that jumping off point, that are looking for that moment when they break from the Messi era, as important and uh, you know, historic and legendary as it is going to be. And does 
and I, I, this may be bl blasphemy to say, is it addition by subtraction for Barcelona to have Messi move on, to have that money to spend on multiple players, to, as you said, you know, as great as he is, he's changed his game. They certainly defer to him, as you would, as one of the great players, but the way that they play is limited because of what he can and cannot do. Or is this, will it, could this end up being a good thing for, for Barcelona? I'm not talking about eyeballs because you lose Messi, you will lose people following Barcelona and you will lose people following La Liga. Not everybody, and that's why you have to replenish. But will this ultimately make Barcelona stronger? Well, first of all, I'd have to see who they'd bring in with that money. But uh, th this current regime has not given me much reason to feel confident <laughs> that they would bring in the right players. And, and no, I think it would be in the short term a disaster losing Messi. I've seen some of the uh, projected lineups for next season of what it would look like without him. And, you know, people are making the same mistake that they made with Real Madrid when Ronaldo left. You sort of imagine the best case scenario for every player. And then Bailey is going to stay healthy. And Griezmann is all of a sudden, without Messi there, going to jump back to being Griezmann again. And, and, and you find that and, and Coutinho is going to go back there and all of a sudden turn into the Coutinho from Liverpool. And you find that it's not it's never going to be the best case scenario for every player. And that's just wishful thinking. And so, no, I mean, I, I think they would take a massive step back in the short term. And, and it, it would be weird to go into a season where Barcelona really not looked upon as one of the elite teams, but I don't think they would be. And, and, and by the way, you, you made a great point earlier for La Liga. This is a disaster. Uh, this is a league that uh, even it, as the premier league grew into this monolith and became clearly the most popular league in the world for, for several years there, La Liga could still uh, claim that that's all fine and good, but we have the best teams and we have the best players. I mean, there, there was a period there, circa 2015, 2016, where you could plausibly argue that the five best players in the world were in La Liga in Messi, Neymar, Suarez, Ronaldo, and Bale. And, and you, you mentioned how they've been, one by one, they've been leaving now. And this is a league that's been marketed around stars. And it, it were Messi, if he leaves, I mean, they are devoid of any real move the needle global stars. And so, and, and, and the nightmare scenario, Messi going to the Premier League of all leagues. I mean, so... Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that is, that is a big sort of, uh, subplot of this whole thing that I've been thinking about, especially coming off. I know Sevilla won the Europa league, but the last couple of seasons, Spanish clubs haven't performed all that well in the champions league. None got to the semis this season. So yeah. And then you add that to losing Messi on top of having lost Ronaldo and Neymar the last couple of years. And by the way, Luis Suarez, we haven't even mentioned this conversation. He's on his way out too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Yeah. I mean, I think there will be a, a curiosity that, not, not the masses, but certainly myself, you, others uh, that, that think about these things. There will be a curiosity to see what a Barcelona looks like, or for that matter, what La Liga looks like. But, you know, the rich get richer if Messi goes to the EPL in terms of that global footprint and that, that relevance that, that we talk about so, uh, so much. I mean, that, and this is where 2020 is such a kick in the you-know-what. This moment deserves fans. This moment deserves the pomp and the circumstance and the Coliseum-esque type of moment. Um, and it's, it's probably not going to get that. And that's a pity. That's a pity. Messi that, deserves that. We deserve that. Sense. Everybody deserves that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea, it's a, such a weird, weird timing for this to be happening now. The idea that Messi could leave Barcelona, go to a new club, and his first home game for his new club 
would be in an empty stadium with none of the fanfare befitting of that moment. It is just, is just a real shame. And I, I do last thing for me, sure. uh, I do want to mention MLS because this will segue nicely to our second segment. Uh, so the Manchester city deal that it's been reported that, uh, it, it would entail him playing for Manchester city for three years and then going to NYCFC. And the other thing that I don't put that much stock in, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. There is this Argentinian journalist, Martin Lieberman, who's a bit like the, the skip Bayless to Messi's LeBron. He's been highly critical of Messi, uh, for several years. The Messi family hates him. So I don't know how he would have any sort of inside scoop on this, but he's been out there the last few days saying that he has inside information that the sleeper and all this is inter Miami. And don't be surprised if Messi's, uh, ends up going to inter Miami. Uh, now, this guy's a bit of an attention seeker and he's the only one out there reporting this. So I don't put that much stock in it, but just in case it happens, I don't want to, I want to at least have mentioned it on this podcast. So I'll put that out there. Yeah. And I know we got a lot of questions and we'll end it here, but uh, I know we got a lot of questions about that potential MLS move as part of a bigger package. And I I actually did talk to the league uh, this past week just to kind of go over, because I've asked this question before, when you have teams with, sister or parent clubs, uh, the, you know, the potential for (laughs) some interesting types of moves and some creative types of deals exists. Uh, MLS is built on making sure that teams don't have too much of a competitive advantage. Uh, We've talked about financial fair play. And so Man City, who we know just got let off of uh, a situation now, I mean, that money that they are paying Messi, that's, you know, that's something that has to be considered going forward. And can you defer payment or can you front load it or back load it? Look, uh, a, a scenario where Messi takes money up front and then comes as a TAM player or, a, you know, someone on a very little salary, that's not going to happen. I've talked to the, the league about that type of stuff. They, they look at fair market value and they assess it and, you know, sometimes it doesn't, it won't pass the smell test. But So they are very aware of how teams that do have these parent clubs can try to game the system uh, going forward. And that's, that's not going to happen. Having said all of that, you know, the, the promise and the future uh, of him continuing on within the city group uh, to another team certainly is something that uh, that could happen, and absolutely something that I could see uh, that I could see happening, uh, and, and him finishing out his career at uh, you know uh, NYCFC. That would that would be that would be something interesting. You mentioned uh, Inter Miami, eh, maybe maybe not, um, but it, this is going to be something to follow from a number of different perspectives, not just the the immediate where he's going to play, but how it how it moves into where he ultimately is going to finish his career. And if that uh, involves continuing with city, the city group uh, and coming to the United States and North America to play in, uh, in major, in major league soccer, which I think would be, would be interesting and fun to see. Uh, I just don't know if it's going to happen sooner uh, rather than later. All right, Mossy, anything else on the uh, messy side? It continues. I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Yep. No, that's it. for. All right. uh, Moving on. When we come back, we'll be, uh, getting into all the, the craziness that was this past week uh, in Major League Soccer and talking a lot about what happened both on and off the field after this uh, quick break. All right, moving on. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to dive right into our MLS roundup. And boy, what a week 
on and off the field this uh, this was. All right, so MLS is back in home markets. MLS is back uh, playing in home markets. For the most part, empty stadiums, a couple of places where there are uh, fans. And the bubble is gone, but not forgotten. And we talked so much about how much of the bubble was going to continue and how much of it wasn't. Before we get to the actual uh, game on the field, uh, you know, we have to mention what happened off the field and the midweek games that were postponed because of the players collectively uh, and in a united way getting together and mirroring what happened with other leagues and other sports in boycotting the, uh, the midweek games. Teams had flown, uh, teams were at the stadium, teams were ready to play, uh, and the communication and the coordination between uh, the players was sufficient enough where everybody got the message and uh, the games were boycotted and for the most part weren't played. One, one game happened, uh, happened in, uh, in Orlando. We talked a lot about this uh, over the uh, weekend with uh, guys like Stu Holden and Marisa Du. Uh, on our uh, on our Fox coverage, and it was uh, I'll tell you what it was an amazing thing to see, and to see it play out in real time, and to see this group of players from uh, Major League Soccer, and we'll concentrate on that. Although, as I said, it was mirrored by others to see that uh, you know that that play out, and to use that power, and to use that platform to bring attention uh, to the issues uh, to the issues of the day. And I think that that was successful. And in talking to players leading up to the games this weekend where they did return to play, it was, uh, it was really interesting to see how they, how they viewed it. And really, you know, anytime you do something like this, it's, as I said, to draw attention and a boycott in and of itself is to get something changed or get something added or something taken away that you don't uh, agree with. And uh, you know, when we look at, for example, what the NBA, uh, I guess, got out of this action, um, you know, you take something like something really tangible and detailed and specific, uh, like opening up the arenas for as voting places and voting uh, stations. You know, that's something that you that everybody can understand <clears throat> and everybody can can see. And when it comes to the MLS uh, players. They're not quite there yet where they have got tangible type of things that you can point to, but they have opened up the conversation. Uh, and I think that they feel confident that going forward, they're going to be able to get some real things that deal with the problems uh, of the country, of the world, but deal with it within the soccer community. And you know that's a positive and that's a, uh, that's a good thing. I'll be interested to see ultimately what those, what those are uh, because you can only go so long with just kind of vague and, and big picture type of, uh, type of talk. And eventually something concrete has to happen, which is what the players ultimately want. And I think that that is going to happen. I think that there's going to be impetus. I think that there's going to be um, a power behind making stuff happen, real stuff happen. Uh, but that's, you know, that's going to take, take a little longer. Uh, but you needed to start and you needed to have that moment to say, we need that to happen. And that, I think, was what happened uh, uh, midweek. And it was done respectfully. And it was, as I said, ultimately, I think, will be 
successful, but it's much more of a process, I think, and a much more long-term process. Um, and it was not as specific as, as other leagues, but that's, that's okay. You got to start, you got to start somewhere. Um, anything to say on that Mossy before we, uh, <clears throat> we look at a little bit more into the actual action. No, except just to say that we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the RSL situation in detail in the Ask Alexi segment. We will, because it's uh, you know it's an um, uh, it's an important thing, and um, it was part of the craziness uh, of the week. So, all right. So then we get down to the actual games, uh, and the games obviously were postponed midweek, but then they resumed again this weekend, and all sorts of craziness uh, in, ensued. Um, we talked about the bubble and how much of it translates. I, I, I'd like to start there because there was certainly a sentiment out there that certain teams or certain players were built for the bubble. And we weren't so sure whether it was going to continue outside the bubble. I think a lot of people looked at Orlando and said, this is something that's sustainable. This is something that can, uh, that can continue outside the bubble. And that it absolutely, the proof is there in that they went into Atlanta. And I know Atlanta isn't what it, what it used to be, but they went into Atlanta and not only beat Atlanta on the road, Beat, beat them convincingly. Uh, Nani didn't even start and yet was able to come in, score a goal. So he continues in his, uh, in his impactful way. And this is the first time that uh, Orlando has been able to beat Atlanta. And Atlanta over the last couple of years has, has made them known about the fact that they can't do it. So this was, I think, a, a huge deal for Orlando, not just to beat at Atlanta, but to continue to prove that what Oscar Perea is doing is something that can achieve long-term uh, success. So that's one thing that stood out for me. Uh, before I move on, uh, anything on that or anything uh, else that's, that stood out with, uh, for you? No, I'm with you on Orlando. Very impressed with them. You mentioned Nani didn't start. Uh, Mauricio Pereira didn't even play in this game. He's been so instrumental to their success this season, and yet they go and, and beat Atlanta the way they did. So very impressed with that team, absolutely. Now, the environments are different. Because we had a uniform environment down in, uh, down in Orlando for the MLS's back tournament, we knew exactly what the aesthetic was and, and you know, the, the background was going to be, and there was a consistency and a familiarity with, with what the production looked like. Now we're back in home markets, you know, and every market is, is a little bit different. Some are better, some are worse. As I said before, some of them have actually had fans. We've seen fans in Kansas City. We've seen fans uh, down in Dallas you know, albeit very few and socially distanced, but you know, you can, you can hear them. Uh, when we do our production, we have enhanced audio. Uh, a lot of the, the local and the regional type of productions don't, uh, don't have that. So it, it's a very different type of, uh, of viewing experience. And, you know, once again, there's nothing we can do about it, uh, but it does suck that those environments that have been created and become so much a part of the experience are not there. For example, when you know I'm watching a, a Portland game uh, this weekend, which was crazy, by the way, 4-4, the fact that the Timbers Army and that environment that is so much a part of the experience uh, and, and is that ultimate 12th person is not there. Um, yeah, it suffers. Uh, when... You know, when I'm watching Seattle, where at times you have 40 and 50,000 people in that stadium and it's rocking and you don't have that. Yeah, yeah, it suffers. But, uh, you know, I think the teams and the players have been doing this now enough where they recognize that that's not coming back anytime soon and they still have a, uh, a job to do. Uh, I mentioned Seattle and uh, their continued 
success and dominance. Uh, last night on our, uh, on our Fox production uh, of MLS, I gave you my power rankings. You can find those on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and I had Seattle at the top, and they continue to be uh, at the top. They went down to Portland and got an away win against their major rival, uh, scoring three goals. Then they came back home and just decimated LAFC. It wasn't pretty, um, and cer- but second, certainly the second half uh, and throughout the game, ultimately, I think that they were the better team. LAFC continues to struggle from a defensive standpoint. The, the loss of Atuesta it can, becomes more and more significant uh, and shows how important he is to a team. They need a goalkeeper. They need a defense. Uh, obviously, no Carlos Vela because he is hurt. So Bob Bradley and company have a lot of work to do in order to get this team back to uh, a functioning level in terms of being competitive, certainly against good teams like Seattle. But, um, you know, they got, a lot of, they got a lot of games coming up here, including against their rival uh, LA Galaxy. So it'll be interesting to see what LAFC looks like. You know, and this brings me to my point about teams like LAFC and Atlanta. You know, these are two teams that came out of the shoot and everything they touched turned to gold. It was all roses on and off the field. No, no problems. Didn't miss a, uh, miss a beat. Uh, you know, our you-know-what doesn't stink. And um, it was great. And they were celebrated, rightfully so, because of the, the, the teams that they put on the field, the branding, all of the different things. It was as close to perfect as you're going to get. The problem is is that both of these teams have never experienced the, the downs. It's only been ups. And now they're going through a down. And how they react is really going to dictate what they ultimately are, both the, the leadership that they have uh, off the field and who they are as a club, including the fan base and how they see this lesser version of a brand that they have come to associate it in its limited time always with success. And uh, I I think it's fascinating because I I love to see people challenged and I love to see if they are up to the challenge right now. But LAFC and Atlanta, two perennial favorites and great teams over the last couple of years are struggling right now. And they got to, they got to figure out a way to get it, uh, get it together. And, and I, I still think that they will be competitive. They're not going to be the teams that they were in the past, but um, you know, these are the types of things right now when I look at MLS uh, that, that are interesting to me uh, in, this, <laughs> in, this cra- in this crazy year when we look at so many things that uh, are kind of thrown out the, uh, the window. Mossy, uh, thoughts, uh, more thoughts on either games or just general thoughts on the way MLS is going right now. Yeah, last night's game you mentioned was fascinating. Uh, Seattle struggled in the bubble, including a 4-1 loss to LAFC in the round of 16. Now, keep in mind, Jerome Paolo didn't play uh, in Orlando. Joven Jones didn't start any of those games. They were unsettled in the center of defense. They've gotten all their pieces back now. And yeah, this is back-to-back really statement wins for the Sounders, the champs, 3-0 away to Portland, 3-1 over LAFC, which I think kind of stamped them as, as the team to beat right now. Uh, in MLS. And yeah, LAFC, we, we talked about this with Bayern Munich recently. Uh, when you're a team that plays a high line and you press a lot, uh, there's an inherent trade-off there. There's a risk-reward calculation. Uh, and, you know, B- Bayern are willing to live with that because they think they're going to uh, 
cause enough turnovers. And also they trust that they have a quality goalkeeper and quality defenders that can kind of mitigate the damage at the other end. And obviously for them, it paid off and it paid off for LAFC uh, last year. I mean, Bob Bradley has been very upfront about the fact that like, I, I I'm not uh, unaware of like the risks that we run in every game. Mm-hmm. I know we, we leave a lot of spaces for the other team to exploit on the counter, but you know, for the most part last season, that, that sort of risk reward calculation came out in their favor. And right now it's just not, uh, you know, it's just, because as you mentioned, they have such a lousy goalkeeper in Vermeer defenders aren't playing well. It just seems like they have to exert a lot of energy and be on the front foot and have more possession and create chances, a lot of chances to be able to score goals. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot for teams at the other end to hurt them and to punish them and, and score goals against them. So that, that calculation right now is off. And yeah, Bob Bradley really needs to sort that out. Well, I mean, you bring up an interesting point, and it's one that we talked about uh, yesterday on the uh, on the broadcast. And you know, it's 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 an evergreen type of conversation when it comes to soccer. It's this this incredible push and pull and contrast um, and s- eternal search for the balance between the romantic and the pragmatist. And you know, when you look at LAFC. And, and Bob Bradley, he, he wears his romantic heart on his sleeve. And he is very, very honest and upfront about, as you said, the way that they play and the risk involved. But, you know, he believes and he is a true believer in that romantic notion of it matters how you play. It matters how you win. And there are those that don't. And, you know, last night I was mentioning the fact that if you watch the first half of the Seattle LAFC game, there's only one team that if you are that romantic and you do like that type of, Bob Bradley would use the word football, there's only one team watching that that you would want to watch on a weekly basis. But ultimately, this is a game about winning. And, you know, ultimately, pragmatists uh, default to, yeah, but we won. And that's, that's true. And I've been on that side too. And I've, I've, I've recognized that people do at times and teams do have to become uh, more pragmatic with their play in order to compete. Otherwise you lose every single game uh, or, mo- or, or most of the games. So I, I, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, to, to our listeners and our, our viewers out there about what they think when it comes to the professional game. Is it is it just about winning and doing whatever it takes, including getting incredibly pragmatic and therefore at times less aesthetically appealing to a lot of people in order to get those results? Or do you die on that hill? Do you, do you wear that romantic part on your sleeve and say, come hell or high water, this is what we're going to do? And even if we lose, we will do it with honor and we're doing it in the way that we believe the game should be played. And as I said, I've been on both sides of this, both as a player and, and as a, uh, a commenter on the game. Uh, there's no real right answer, but it is, it is fascinating to see as these MLS teams start to establish identities, how much of it is genuine. And at what point do they divert uh, or pivot or change in order to get the results and the success in terms of the scoreline that they need? And in doing so, do, do they abandon and betray 
what they have promised themselves and others. Now, that's, as I said, that's a much more big picture type of existential <laughs> question that we in the soccer world have always been trying to, to answer and, uh, and look at. And it doesn't just apply to us, it applies to all leagues out there and all teams, especially bigger teams where they're, they're promising us something special. They're not just promising us wins. They're promising us something special in the way that they go about getting those wins. And is that even possible? I, I, I don't know. Uh, Masi, I know I went off on a little tangent there about, uh, about romance and, and pragmatism, but uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Of course you understand. No, absolutely. You probably uh, know a whole lot more about more it than teams, I do. Two more teams I want to ask you about. Uh, the Galaxy follow up their big win over LAFC with a nice uh, 3-2 win over San Jose. Uh, Pavon with another strong performance. Leggett playing well. Uh, do you buy that the Galaxy have turned a bit of a corner here? I buy that the Galaxy... Um, Yes, I do. I think I think they have turned a corner in that, you know, to get back to the, what we were just talking about. I think they now understand what they are and what they aren't, what they can be and what they can't be. Um, it wasn't. Uh, was it pretty? I mean, the Galaxy fans will say, yeah, it was pretty in that we won, <laughs> you know, and now we've now they've won uh, two in a row. I'm, I'm still not saying that this is a great Galaxy team by any stretch of the, uh, the imagination. It's still, and it still has, uh, it still has holes, but, you know, I do, I do like the fact that at a time when Guillermo Baroschilotto was under pressure and that team was under pressure so much so that I think, you know, had they gone out and gotten hammered by LAFC in that El Trafico, um, I, I think there's a good chance that they would have looked to make a change. Now do two games winning two games in a row, justify and validate that decision so much so that you're going to say, well, this is what decides it all for us. If you wanted to make a change, I don't think these last two games, to be quite honest, should, should change your mind. If you didn't believe that Guillermo Barascolota was the person to lead you two games ago, these two past wins, I don't think that should convince you. Um, and I, and I, I don't remain convinced. So... I don't know. Anything else, Mossy, uh, when it comes to uh, Major League Soccer? Uh, our game Wednesday is Atlanta-Inter-Miami. Oh, yeah. You've already done Atlanta, so let, let's hit on Inter-Miami quickly. Uh, they lost this weekend to Nashville in a battle of expansion size. They have only one win all season. They're in last place in the standings. Um, they do have Blaise Matuidi uh, uh, going to be joining the fold here soon, and they still have an extra DP spot, which there's some debate about whether they should go out and get a, a center forward or a playmaker. We've heard Luis Suarez's name mentioned. Uh, but just give me your overall thoughts on Inter-Miami, a club that a lot of people thought would have sort of an LAFC, Atlanta United-like uh, entry into the league, and instead it's been a bit more of a soft launch, I think it's fair to say. When it comes to Inter-Miami, uh, it has been a disappointing soft launch um, in that this isn't Inter-Miami. This is David Beckham's Inter-Miami, okay? And with that attachment comes the the good and the bad. The good is you have one of the, the biggest brands in the world guiding uh, and illuminating a, a new team. The bad is, is that the, exp and it's not even bad necessarily, but the expectations are such that you can't be poor. You can't be mediocre. You have got to be good out of the shoot and that other teams have come in and been good out of the shoot. Like you mentioned, Atlanta and LAFC, shows that it can be done. And so when it's not done, it's a poor reflection on you. And when I say you, it always comes back <laughs> to David Beckham. This is a David Beckham venture 
that has failed to live up to what David Beckham is. And look, the, the story is still to be written, but, but so far, it's, it's not been good. However, you know, if, if for those that watch my, my, uh, my power rankings, I actually, I actually boosted them up from where they are in the standings because I do believe that the powers that be down there are going to get this right in that they are going to make this a team that is competitive. You mentioned the designated uh, player spots, Matuidi, you know, different things that are going to happen. I think that while there is an element of a soft launch going on here, there's also a recognition that it, it, it's not Minnesota. And I love you, Loons, uh, but th this is a different type of proposition. And they have to do the things now to get things right. And I know that the, the stadium in Miami is in the future, and this is, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're a Miami team, but they're playing in Fort Lauderdale now temporarily, although this is the most incredible temporary stadium I've ever seen erected uh, in terms of what it looks like and in terms of the money that's been, uh, been spent. But that just shows the ambition. Well, the ambition has to be matched with the product and a good quality competitive product. And right now, it's not there yet. And that's disappointing. But as I said before, I still remain bullish that this is a Miami team that is going to get it right either by fixing the problems that they have with what they have and or by adding other things uh, from the outside to make, uh, uh, to make them better. But I will be and I'll be, I'll be interested to see this week what, what they look like as the pressure continues to get ratcheted up. And, you know, if David Beckham's Inter-Miami is a historically bad team, that is bad for the brand of not just Inter-Miami, but that's bad for the brand of Beckham. And having worked with uh, and seen the brand of Beckham in action, they will do everything uh, to try to fix that. And I'm, I'll bet you they're already trying to fix that because that is not something that, uh, that the brand of Beckham accepts. And that's a good thing, by the way. That's a, that, that's a good part of it. Uh, anything else, Masi? That's it. Uh, okay. Uh, so that's our, uh, our little MLS uh, roundup right there. Um, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, you know what? You love it. Uh, the Ask Alexi segment of our uh, little production here. That is on tap right around the corner after a real quick break. Uh, don't go away. Moving on. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the social media platforms and uh, we pick a few each week and read off your questions, comments, or uh, concerns out there. All right, Mosti, what do the people want to know this week when it comes to Ask Alexi? Uh, first up, at Cletus05, uh, thoughts on the RSL situation? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, so we talked about <laughs> uh, recording the pod last week and then all hell breaking loose uh, for the rest of the week in terms of stories. So, all right. Uh, I'm going to give you a little Cliff Notes version for those that don't know. Most of you uh, do know, but uh, Deloy Hansen is the uh, current owner of the... Uh, well, of numerous teams in Salt Lake, including uh, Real Salt Lake. And uh, after the, uh, the boycotts happened last week, uh, he came out and was publicly and very obviously very miffed by the decision. Now, keep in mind that RSL was one of the uh, clubs uh, that was 
having games with fans and you know that they had to send people home he was none too happy with the uh with the players uh, for making that decision and he made his his feelings known <clears throat> problem was that both his comments um and what emerged as previous comments were made public uh, and he was alleged uh, over the course of a number of years to have made uh, racist comments and inappropriate comments, uh, including the ones that he made about the situation midweek with the boycott. So much so that the league put out uh, statements condemning uh, the statements that uh, their owner had made. And when I say the league, multiple leagues did, also the NWSL, uh, because he is an owner not just of an MLS team, but an NWSL team and a USL team in uh, the Salt Lake uh, area and has been for a number of years. Well, you know what? Life moves pretty fast. And by the end of the week, uh, even after ownership uh, Delroy Hansen had tried to apologize and smooth over the situation. It obviously got to an untenable position. And look, I, I don't know all of the details. I only know what is out there, uh, there public, but it came to a point where, as I said, there was not an opportunity to move on in this type of situation. So much so that uh, Delroy Hansen came to the league uh, and the leagues and said, this is not something that is healthy for me or for the league. And I am going to sell the team at which point the leagues agreed and said, this is uh, something that we will help you with. So we started the week <laughs> with a situation where a longtime owner in Delo Hansen uh, owned multiple teams, uh, multiple facilities, uh, high school, all sorts of different real estate uh, when it came to the soccer part of uh, this entity in Utah. And by the end of the week, he had agreed to sell this. All right, so there's a lot to, to chew on there. But what it comes down to is that there is a huge soccer property out there in the Salt Lake City area that is for sale. That, as I said, includes an MLS team, an NWSL team, a USL team, uh, an, MLSL, an MLS stadium, a uh, NWSL stadium, which we saw uh, during the NWSL uh, bubble tournament that they had, uh, a high school, training facilities, real estate assets, uh, and probably stuff that I don't even know about. So it's a, it's a huge, huge type of um, entity out there with all sorts of different parts. And that's what is really interesting to me because this isn't a this isn't a Columbus situation. This isn't a Chicago situation where you have an absentee owner. This isn't a situation where, you know, regardless of this of the uh, of the problems and the allegations out there, I think everybody can agree that this is an owner who put a tremendous amount into the sport in that area, um, and that's a good thing because. Whoever comes in, provided they stay in the area, is going to get you know, a lot of good assets. Now, it remains to be seen whether the assets are going to be sold off individually or collectively. I think everybody hopes 
because as I said, this isn't a Columbus situation where let's be honest, a lot of the ownership in major league soccer said, whether we have Columbus or not in our league makes no difference to us. And there wasn't a local ownership in that particular moment that was stepping up to say, yes, we want to keep it. I don't think that's the case when it comes to the way that ownership looks at Salt Lake. Uh, and I do think that there are going to be local ownership type of groups that are going to step up and buy this, either by individual teams or by the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, you could, you could own soccer in that area if you bought the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel. And, and look, Del Loy Hansen is, is, is not going to give it away. Yes, he's going to walk away, but he's going to get paid to walk away. And he's going he's gonna to make some money on, on, uh, on this. And hopefully this gets done sooner rather than later so we can move on from him and we can continue to build, hopefully, in Salt Lake, uh, what has already been built there in a much better way and with much better leadership there. Uh, people have asked me now about whether this is something where the team could move. As I said before, I don't think that this is a situation where they're looking to move the team because I think they like the, the market and the market has a history and a successful history. So look, this is not something that anybody predicted a week ago, and, which is why I say life moves pretty fast and um, things change very, very fast. I think ultimately this will be a good thing going forward because I do think that whatever ownership comes in, as I said, is, is buying something that can continue to be successful and even more successful. And, and I hope that that, uh, that that happens. I don't see this as a buy and move, and that would have to be agreed upon by ownerships of multiple leagues if, if somebody wanted to, to do that. And there are, also, there, there are plenty of cities already out there and markets out, out there that are willing to pay the expansion fee right now. And um, you know, I, I see this as an opportunity to build upon the positive, and there is plenty of positive out there in Salt Lake when it comes to soccer, build upon it and make it even better. And I hope that that is what happens. Um, and so you have this, this moment of, of problems and, and a negative type of situation that hopefully can be turned into a much more positive situation and build on the positives that are already there. Uh, Masi, what else? Uh, next up. At, uh, what do we think here, Michelle? Yeah, yeah Michelle. Michelle McPhee. Um, how many minutes will Weston McKinney realistically get at Juve? Would Southampton have been a better move? Look, I think if Juve calls, you got to go. Okay, it doesn't matter who you are, especially for someone like Weston McKinney. <laughs> I mean, a couple weeks ago, it was... Well, you know, is he going to go to Hertha or is he going to go, like you said, to Southampton? The, the, the thought of going to one of the elite preeminent clubs in the world, that wasn't, that wasn't even on the radar. So how that all came about, and eventually it'll come out, um, I'm going to be really interested to see how this all came about. Because when Juventus is on the table, <laughs> that's a totally different conversation. Yeah, you're taking that phone call. Yeah, you're getting on that plane. And yeah, you're signing no matter what the situation is and what the deal is. And believe me, he's going to, play, he's going to make plenty of money. You know, this is, this is rarefied air for any player. Um, 
so that's so that's to answer your question though is he going to play because that is important I, you know i don't know i think i think this is great for a number of reasons weston mckinney has tried to be everything to everybody on Schalke for a number of years now i think he's going to be asked to do a specific job and that job might be you're just a terrier and you run around, you win the ball, and then you give it to the closest Juventus player that you can possibly find. You don't need to be a creative player. You don't need to make passes uh, longer than 10 yards. And that might be his role. And then when set pieces happen, you go up and do your, uh, do your damage. And I love that that, that p- potentially could be his role because I think he's tried to do too much. I want to see Weston McKinney not trying to be everything to the team just doing a specific job and the value is that he is able to do that and then get the ball to the other people that can do the other stuff that by the way can't do what he can can do and and he was going to have to fight and there's going to be plenty of competition out there but i see no reason why he can't be a starter for juventus and he can't play a specific role mossy am i off uh no so uh the deal here it's a one season loan with an option to buy for 18 million euros. However, if he plays 60% of their games this season, then they're obligated to buy him permanently. Uh, and this was just an incredible development came out of nowhere. As you mentioned, I think we all felt like McKinney was ready for a step up, but so far all the teams he had been linked with, Hertha Berlin, Monaco, Southampton, been kind of underwhelming. It felt like sideways-ish moves and people were starting to talk themselves into, well, if that's what's out there, he might as well spend another season at Schalke. And then Juventus comes out of nowhere. He's going to be playing alongside Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, Now, uh, keep in mind, Andrea Pirlo has never managed the game before, so there's no basis for what type of player he likes, what kind of manager he is, and and all that. So he's a bit of a, you know, uh, blank slate as far as that goes. Um, Juventus are a team that's undergoing a bit of a transition in the midfield. They're looking to get younger. Uh, they sold Blaise Matuidi to Inter Miami. They made that Pjanic Artur swap with Barcelona. And by all accounts, Sammy Kadir is on his way out as well. So what that leaves you with in those deeper midfield positions are uh, Rodrigo Bentancourt, Artur, who I just mentioned, Adrian Rabio, and then a little bit farther up the field, Kulusevski. Um, which, listen, all those are, are very good players who I think will start the season ahead of Weston in the pecking order, but it's not like I just said Xavi and Yesta and Kevin De Bruyne. You know, it's, I mean, it's not uh, far-fetched to me that, that he's, he's going to get some chances, and if he plays well, he could carve out a role with that team. So, yeah, it's not that far-fetched at all. But, but to your point, Michelle McPhee, it is important that he plays. Uh, in the same, you know, way that I talk about uh, Zach Steffen at Man City, just just being in that, yet albeit rarefied air, but just being in that isn't good enough. You you do have to play. And it would be concerning to me if Weston McKinney wasn't playing at all. Like you said, he's gonna have to work work in and that in and of itself, that working in and competing for that spot, that that's good. But ultimately he's got to get on the field. And I do believe that he will get on the field. And I do believe when he gets on the field, he will prove his worth. And it it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Okay. He's, he's a good player. Okay. Is he, is he a great player? I I don't think so, but he's, but he's a good player and even a good player and a good American can go and can compete and can, and can do a job for Juventus. Uh, and I, I did read a couple of articles in the Gazeta dello Sport the last few days talking about uh, past Americans in Syria and a, and a certain name <laughs> that was mentioned in those articles. Uh, any advice for Weston in adapting to life in Italy, having gone through it yourself? 
my advice to Weston McKinney, uh, and look, I, I played in the previous century, so a lot of things have changed, <laughs> but some things don't change in that. So first things first, learn the language. That goes without saying. Uh, it will endear you. Uh, it will make your life easier to know what others are saying, to be able to communicate. Um, and ultimately, it's a form of respect. And you're going to need all the help that you can get. And if the fact that you are taking the time and showing the respect and honoring the culture that has invited you in, and you are a guest, if the fact that you are taking that time to learn that language, if that gives you just a little bit of the benefit of the doubt along the way, when you do step on the field, you're probably going to need that. And you're going to want that going forward. The other thing is, is take it all in. Um, you know, I, I was only there for a short time, but in the couple years that I was there, I not only became a better soccer player, but I became a better person. And it's going to be a very different type of culture on and off the field than the Bundesliga uh, and in Germany. And that's, that's okay. That expands your horizons and you will be a more well-rounded player and person for having gone through uh, this experience. And as I said, I, I was at a very small club in Italy. This is, this is a whole nother level. Um, and, you know, we've had Oguchi Onyewur at AC Milan. We've had Michael Bradley at Roma and Verona. And, and you know, so we have had limited type of success when it comes to American. And I, I couldn't be happier for Weston McKinney for this opportunity that he is going to, uh, going to get. But I stress this. Just because Weston McKinney is on the books at Juventus doesn't mean that he should start for the national team. Okay. And we've said that, we've said that before. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I stick, I stick with that. And as I said, that's, that applies to Zach Steffen at Man City. Uh, also doesn't mean he, he shouldn't. Okay. But you, you got to be playing. And if you're not just sitting in the Juventus locker room um, or training with Juventus in 2020, it's not enough. Well, Anything that, else? That's, that segues perfectly to our last uh, Ask Alexi question. Okay. Uh, which, of course, my phone just okay. Uh, at vote for Pedro. With what we've seen from our talent, is there no limit to how far the U.S. men's national team can go in 2026? And I do want to say, uh, I could tell that uh, you're a little bit conflicted about this, which is normal, by the way. It's not a criticism, but there's a part of your brain that does think it's kind of cool to be able to rattle off this list of young Americans playing at big European clubs. And you understand why people get excited about that. But you also want to caution against uh, basing uh, people basing their opinions of the quality of the U.S. team uh, based purely on the European club pedigree. And you think that's a little bit of flawed logic. And so I, I could tell those two parts of your brain are sort of pushing back against each other a little bit because th this did go to a place of like, oh my God, look at where all these Americans are playing. That must automatically mean that, that the U.S. is in incredible shape for the, for the next few years. Yeah, I think it, I think it satisfies uh, a, a, uh, a need both domestically uh, and maybe internationally, to look at the U.S. and feel secure uh, about what the team is. And oftentimes we equate Europe with quality. And sometimes very fairly and, and rightfully so. You know, however, as, as I said before, I mean, the potential is that the next time the U.S. men's national team gets together, the whole team gets together, provided everybody is healthy, you could have starters from... Uh, Chelsea, Man City, Juventus, 
Um, what else uh, out there? Ajax. Um, well, Dortmund with Gio Reyna. Dortmund, exactly, uh, and you know plenty of other European teams out there. But you know these are some these are some elite, uh, super club type of European names, and these players are there. They're on the books. Uh, some of them are are regulars and playing, and some of them are trying to be regulars and playing. Some of them aren't regulars and 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 aren't playing. You know, my my point is that that's great, and that changes perception and and that certainly helps but if it was as simple as saying if we have a national team where everybody plays in europe we're we're better and we're going to win a world cup then that would have been done a long time ago okay it's not as simple as that and any coach of the u.s men's national team in 2020 recognizes that they are going to have to do that and we talked a little bit about last week have to do that mixing um, and integrating of players that play in Europe and players that play uh, domestically. And sometimes we're going to find out that 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 pedigree gives us a warped perception of what that player is. And sometimes that pedigree and that CV, while it may look very, very impressive, when that whistle blows, it doesn't look as impressive. And it could be because of a number of uh, a number of things, but you know, I, I that 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 was you know a long way of saying that yes, I do remain incredibly optimistic and bullish about the future uh, because of all of these players that we have that are getting opportunities, all of this talent that we have that is being looked at with an optimistic lens. And oftentimes that optimistic lens is purely related to the fact that there is interest in that player from, from Europe. And I, I get it. I understand why, why that is. But um, I think if and when we get to that point where the U.S. men's national team is competitive or is seen as what a lot of people want, and that is a consistently competitive team, that is worthy of our praise and of our support, it's going to be a, a, a mixture of players playing all over the place that ultimately are successful on that inner, international field. I mean, I know it's a long time ago. When, when Kobe Jones and, and myself, when we stepped on the field in 1994, we had never even been on the books of a club team. And yet we were somehow able <laughs> to be successful at the international level. So the international game is a very, very different type of animal. And yeah, you hedge your bets with players playing at big clubs and what we, quote unquote, look at as, uh, as great clubs. But it doesn't always, it doesn't always translate the way that, uh, that, people, uh, that, we, that people think. And I'm not saying that's not a reason not to be excited, um, but I'm just cautioning. And like you said, I only have a little brain. And when both sides of it are working, it, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> I will say, though, you know, we've talked about this ever since that qualification failure. There's been sort of a dark cloud and a cynicism around mm -hmm. this program. And I do think with the emergence of some of these young players and their exploits at club level, whether it's uh, what Pulisic did at Chelsea this past season, uh, Gio Reyna, some of his performances for Dortmund, Tyler Adams scoring that goal in the Champions League quarterfinals uh, against Atletico Madrid for Leipzig, and now this Wesson McKinney move. I think that's, I, I'm sensing an excitement again that I haven't sensed in a while, and those dark clouds clearing a bit. Now, there, there still are these naysayers out there, uh, the sky is falling crowd that uh, first they tried to 
push back against the notion that there was this really talented generation coming up and they felt like U.S. fans were overrating some of these young guys. They've sort of had to give up on that because clearly this is a very talented group. And so now what you hear is, oh, well, they're, they're good at club level, but the U.S. will, Greg Berhalter will screw it up. He won't know how to get the best out of these guys. And when they go play for the national team, it's not going to come together as nicely as people are hoping for. And you just hope that whenever the U.S. men's national team gets back on the field again, these first few games, uh, that they, they are able to perform well to sort of uh, capitalize on that excitement. Because it would be a little bit, you know, if we get excited about having all these players playing for these top clubs and then they go in the next couple of games, the U.S. plays or they give the put forth terrible performances, a little bit of the air would come out of the balloon and it would perpetuate that notion that, yeah, just because we have these exciting young players, it doesn't mean it's going to translate at all to the national team level. Look, when it comes to Greg Berhalter, we'll end it here. Uh, I know he takes a lot of crap. I would put Greg Berhalter's knowledge, okay, and acumen when it comes to the game up there with anybody in the world, okay? Uh, <laughs> It's, it is amazing to me how many people just completely dismiss him and, and others simply because they are American in that they can't possibly fathom how the human mind works or the human uh, soccer player's mind works. They can't possibly understand the depth and the layers and the nuance of uh, the, the game out there. And as I've said before, and as I continue to argue, because of that, soccer players and American soccer coaches have had to immerse themselves even more so than many of their colleagues from around the world uh, in order to, I guess, to, to combat that type of feeling and sentiment that is out, uh, that it is out, uh, that is out there when it comes to, uh, to what they are doing. Now, look, it doesn't mean that he can't fail and doesn't mean that Greg Berthold Greg Berhalter can't make mistakes, and ultimately he's going to be judged on the, uh, the wins and losses. But to say that he can't handle a player that plays at Juventus or something like that, that's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, to me, at least. And to bring it back full circle, you, you talk about the skepticism that uh, U.S. coaches face. I mean, no greater example of that than Ted Lasso. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that's who we need, right? I mean, if you watch the show, it's a, it's a completely different perception of Ted Lasso than uh, the one that the, uh, the promo for NBC uh, gave us. And, and I love that. I love the fact that they, like I said, they, they changed it up in a way and they threw a curveball in there. It's uh, wonderful. All right, Mossy, anything else when it comes to uh, Ask Alexi? That's it. All right. Well, then we come to the end of uh, yet another uh, pod. And at the end of each and every pod, we do our one for the road. And uh, it, it actually segues nicely from what we uh, just talked about into what I was thinking. I was uh, and have been over the, the last years encountering more and more younger people in our profession, uh, players that are recent re recently retired and certainly relative to me uh, are, are younger. And I see in them, I see the wheels turning and we have conversations uh, about, you know, the current generation. And inevitably and understandably, uh, there is an element of, maybe resentment is, is, is too strong a word, but but maybe it's, it's, it's rooted in an understandable human jealousy. And 
I, I guarded against it early on and I continue to guard against it because you know, the fact is that whether you're a, a parent, uh, and in some ways I look at myself as, as a parent of the game of soccer in the United States, you want to give that next generation a better experience. You want them to have it better than you did. And if you don't, then be honest, you're doing something wrong, okay? But when that happens and they are afforded more opportunity and they have better resources and they don't have to go through some of the hardships and the challenges that you went through, there's a certain element and human uh, element that says, you know, uh, let me tell you about when I used to have to walk through the snow and, and that. And I, I, I get that. There's a tendency for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the modern day player and think, well, what if I had had that? And think of what my career would have been or think of the opportunities that I would have had or think of the money that I would made or the, the fame that I would have achieved. And I, I come in contact, as I said, with a lot of retired players, recently retired players, and I, and I see and I hear some of that happening. And as I said, it's completely normal. And I know that at times I was probably there in the past doing the exact same thing. And you got to get over that. And it takes a little while, but eventually you will. I'm here to tell you that, uh, that you will. And you will come to appreciate and you will come to take incredible pride in the fact that a player playing today has and is afforded so many more and better opportunities. And, you know, whether it's talking about, you know, a Weston McKinney or a Tyler Adams or a Christian Pulisic or any of the young players playing today, a, a, a Brendan Aronson uh, or a Busio or, or all of these different players that we talk about that are getting seen and that pathway is so much more illuminated. Uh, and yes, that pathway is so much easier. Take pride and be happy for them and pat yourself on the back because the reason why that pathway is there is because of some of the things that you have done, because you have enabled that pathway to open up, because you have helped to illuminate it along the way. And if you, want, if you need your moment to be, to be jealous, take that moment and then move on. Um, and as I said, it... it it's normal and I get it. And it will dissipate as you get further and further away from uh, your career. And you will get to a point where it's much more of, wow, it's amazing where we have come and the opportunities that this generation has. And so, you know, that's, that's the things that I've been thinking about, especially as I, uh, as I talk to different people and as we see all of these wonderful opportunities for young American players there that, let's be honest, they were never there in the past or they were completely contingent on you having a great World Cup. And there's only a, a small fraction of people that get that opportunity. I'm lucky to, to have been one, but those pathways would have been, wouldn't have been available without that moment in that, uh, in that World Cup. And that's changed a lot. And it's going to help the game. It's going to help the individual players. And if you truly are that American soccer person, that's what you want. That's what you want for players. And that's what you want for the game. And 
celebrate it. And as I said, take pride in it because without you, it's not as easy as it has become. And believe me, we've still got a long way to go. And there will be a generation right now that's going through this easier path that's going to look back at the, at the, at the previous generation or there's going to look to the next generation and say, man, you have it so much easier. But that's what we want. That's what we want as soccer people. And let's be honest, that's what we want as humans. We want it better for that next generation. And we want to leave it better. And you have to take pride uh, and be happy when that has happened. And it is happening. And recognize that it's happening. Mossy, anything else? That's it. All right. We thank you so much uh, for tuning in, for watching, for listening. Uh, please use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the social media platforms. Please continue to download and to rate and to review and to subscribe to this pod. Uh, we thank you so much for uh, your patronage. And um, we will be back again next week as we are each and every week to talk more about what's going on. Man, oh man, uh, this past week was crazy. In, in good ways and in bad ways, but it's given us plenty to talk about. We'll see what this, league ha this week has in store for us. All right, uh, see you a week from now, and until then, size the day.